morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Asking God to help someone else 
uh, demonstrates the humility on our part. Right? Because if we need to ask God for something, what does that mean? That means I can't do it. Right? I can't do it. I can't supply another family with what they need. I can't even supply my family with what they need unless God gives me the ability to do it. Right? We can't make someone else healthy, but we know that God can. And so we pray to Him for people's health, for, for marriages, for churches, for missionary work. We are dependent on God to do that. And prayer, by its very nature, makes us small and makes God great. Right? We are acknowledging God, you can do this, I cannot. I need to bring it to you. Uh, and, there. and then it also mentions Thanksgiving, which is important. Uh, I don't think this pertains to be fine. We all know what Thanksgiving is. But I think it is worth reflecting on the fact uh, that Thanksgiving actually makes no sense in a world without a personal God. Right? If we have a personal God, we know where all the things come from. And, and I always get a kick out of it at Thanksgiving time when unbelievers or non Christians are thankful. Okay, well, first of all, thankful for what? This is just how hydrogen works at this temperature. And it just so happens that the cold, impersonal machinery of the universe turned out something that you like. It's nothing to be thankful for. It's not. It's just random chance. It's nothing. It's meaningless. Uh, and further, if there's not a God behind these gifts, who are you thankful? Okay? So you have to ask, thankful for what? And thankful to who? Thanksgiving is actually impossible for anyone who does not know God as a personal so Thanksgiving as well demonstrates that we are dependent on God. We are thankful to Him because this isn't a cold, impersonal cause and effect machine. This is a personal world uh, that God is lovingly put His hand of creation and care into. And so the fact that we make these supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving for all people reminds us that we also need to be invested in the lives of one another. But there's lots of one another's in the Bible. Uh, the way we care for white people, the way we uh, pray for them, and step in when there's practical needs, bring a meal, give some rides to the captain's office, so forth. We need to be invested in each other's lives. So our job should never be to pray for a ditch while we're leaving on a shovel. Right? Uh, if you pray for something, get to work doing it. God uses means to answer this thing, and frequently He uses us. Right? He uses us. Don't just pray that that family will be fed, bring them a meal. Don't just pray that so-and-so gets her doctor's appointment. Why don't you offer to take care of their things right? And so prayer also reminds us of our responsibility to one another. Verse 2 makes reference to praying for those who are kings and those in high positions. And I think this is a timely moment for us to reflect on this. Many of us in the last two years have been ready to raise the Jolly Roger and start living with pirates, right? Overreaching government, stepping out of their bounds. Uh, we're ready to go to Gatsby flight, the state, the Trail, the state. I think we're all ready for that, at least instinctively we are. Uh, and that's not without very good reason. However, we need to be reminded of something here. The fact is that history has always been dominated by heavy handed who do not order limitations and who refuse to acknowledge the king of other kings. So, heavy handed, overreaching government is the history of the world. This is not new, even if it's new to us. And the reason that we, in this room, in this generation, have enjoyed the peace and freedom that we have is because our society in the West is founded upon Christian principles, it was founded upon 
reformational, Protestant, and, and you could say Puritan principles. We've been discussing this a lot in nice theology. The rule of law, uh, innocent until proven guilty, the requirement of two or three witnesses, limited government, none of this just came up for no reason. This came up because Christians were thinking like Christians when they settled these nations in the West. So this is something we can be thankful to God for. Uh, but as the foundation of this crumbles, as we forget what God has done, as we forget why we enjoy the gifts that we enjoy, and the hard work that went into making those gifts, if the foundation starts to crumble, it should be no surprise whatsoever that the building on top of that foundation is starting to show where it's there and start to crumble as well. Right? And there's no end to the string of ridiculousness and ungodliness that we see coming from our leaders. Right? Uh, on top of the tacit uh, acknowledgement that they own your face, and they own your family, and they own your family gatherings, and they own your business, and they own your church, and they own the universe, right? Uh, I don't like the weather. What's the solution? Well, a tax and more government, naturally, right? The government needs to control the weather for us. Uh, we have Bill C-4, Bill C-7, Bill C-10, uh, and the next to the spring now, I saw uh, we were looking at Bill S-233, which provides a, unit, a universal basic income, right? Directly in conservation, of all discretion that if a man does not work, he should not eat. Right? In direct violation of the law of God, we just have law after law after law after law, raising this in hatred at God. And so it's no wonder if Christians are starting to feel a little bit like we're ready to raise the fire of after centuries of progress, we're now reverting back to the beginning myth that uh, the government stands as a totalitarian force. And if you think we're totalitarian, that means you're going to end up in the new log and get suffering, uh, get your little ration of bread. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It can turn into that. But totalitarianism just means that we see the totality of something is someone's job. The totality of your life belongs to the state. Okay? That's totalitarianism. And that's why the state is frequently in history uh, a direct rival to God. Because the only uh, government that is, encompasses the totality of life is God's government. Other governments, church government, family government, civil government, are all part of the picture, but no one of them becomes the totality of the whole thing. So totalitarianism uh, works like idolatry. It just means we take something that's good in itself, but then we see it as the overarching control over absolutely every sphere of life. And that is totalitarianism, and we are a place to be into it. And Paul and Timothy both would have known it. The emperor at the time was Nero, who, if you check the record, was not a nice man by any stretch. Uh, and in many ways, they had it far, far worse than we do. They were much deeper into gayness than we currently are, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be aware of that is behind what we see, what we know. Right? And uh, so we should never think of creation like Russian nesting dolls. I frequently use that analogy because it works in my head, right? Where the individual is the smallest doll, and then the family comes, swallows up the individual, and then the church swallows the family, and then the community swallows the church, and the biggest nesting doll that encompasses all of them, that's the government, right? The government is responsible for everything, it swallows up every sphere of life. Uh, and we can't do that with the government, we also can't do that with the family or the church. That divides things and puts them in their proper place, and we need to recognize that. But when we see these principles being violated, 
Uh, as frustrating as it may be, as much as we may wish to rail against that, uh, we also need to be reminded that revolution is never, ever, under any circumstance, a Christian response. Revolution is destructive. It almost always does more harm than good. Uh, and it, 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 revolution takes this mindset that we just got to tear everything down and start over. It's mob mentality. The, the Christian response to what we see is reformation. We have a foundation, we have a standard, and that's the word of God. We don't need to tear it all down. We need to reform, we need to rebuild. Uh, if this needs adjusting, we adjust it. If that needs work, we do the work there. But we're not out to tear it down and recreate the world. Uh, we have the standard, our job is to reform. Uh, and that works in our families as well. Right? If something's not going with your family, you don't just burn it down to the ground. You work on the things that you work. So Christians should not be revolutionaries ever. Okay? Um, we are reformational in our response. We are tempered. We have a standard that we are working with. So our opposition must be principled, and it must be done with Christian integrity, as indeed we see in this passage. That we may be a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So even at those points where we resist, we're not throwing rocks at the moon. We're not revolutionaries, we are doing this as a principle, dignified way. Okay? Don't look like a family fighting as you're doing this. Then it says we are to pray for God to oppose the drought and to conquer his enemies, to pray for those in high positions. And of course, God has two ways of conquering his enemies. One way is in his anger. Right? You've heard about this in the suicide of Judas. Or Queen Jezebel being thrown out and the blood splatters everywhere, and by the time they go and clean her up, the dogs feet and everything, except for her hands and feet. Okay. Uh, Emperor Nero himself was emperor at this time, died a tragic and well deserved death. Uh, that is one way that God deals with his enemies, is by utterly destroying them. But there's another way that God deals with his enemies. The second way that God conquers his enemies is the way he conquers all the horses. Or the way he conquered King Asa. Or another Roman emperor, Constantine. He conquers them with the gospel. He conquers them as enemies by turning them into his friends. Okay? So God has two ways of destroying his enemies. Uh, and so when we are praying for the destruction of God's enemies, uh, don't just have one thing in mind. God may make peace through this way or this way. And he is equally glorified in uh, Peter's repentance as the Jesus is part of it. So we trust God for this. But it is nevertheless. Our task to pray for those who support them. They would bend the knee to God and they would honor Him as Lord of all. And if we want some peace and justice in our land, the only way will be for our rulers and for our citizens to see the law of God as ultimate. Verses 3 and 4, it says here that this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So verse 3 orients our minds as to why we do what we do. And you may have noticed, I'm hoping you're noticing a pattern here, uh, that what we want to accomplish in this church is is that everything we think about, every doctrine, every idea, we are going to be unapologetically God-centered. Okay? Not man-centered. We're doing theology, which is the knowledge of God, not anthropology, which is the study of man. And that is not obvious. But many, many times, even in Christian circles, we start with a man-centered idea, right? Well, why should we pray? Well, did you know that great people have 23% less cancer? 
Did you know that there's an 18% happier psychological outcome for people who pray? Okay. Did you know that? I just made those stats up. Interestingly, 67% of statistics are made up on the spot. So, <laughs> so but, but you notice what that does. That sends the base. Why do we do what we do? Well, because it benefits me directly, right? That's, that's man-centered thing. We do what, what makes sense to me, even if God is included in the picture, even if we're doing the right things, what's the reason? Well, it benefits me. Okay? Did you know that if you got married at a certain age, your marriage is going to turn out better? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? No one should care. Found the right girl. This is a good situation. Put her in my Get married. Don't wait because the dad says, wait till you're 26, you'll have a better son. Do what God says. Okay? Uh, and this is this is all over the place where we made everything man centered. It's me centered. Okay? And so the, the reason Paul offers you to pray isn't because you're going to have a happier psychological outcome. It's not because your first time of getting cancer is so and so less. Why do we do it? Verse 3. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. See the difference? See the difference? Isn't that saying that this is God-centered? Why do we pray? Because God delights when we pray. It's God-centered, not man-centered. And if those other things so happen to be true, that's fine. In fact, it would make sense if they are true. In a lot of ways, it would make sense. But we need to relentlessly, every time we think of any issue, what's the reason we're doing this? The answer should always start with the word God, and not with the word me, or us, or man, or human, or whatever. God-centered, relentlessly God-centered, in all we do, in all we think, in all we say. Verse 4 does bear some consideration, and this is where we're going to have to pull out our money to the fellows are telling us over here. We should be familiar with God's intentions for the salvation of the world. It is everywhere in the Bible. And the very first time we see the gospel is Genesis 3.15. You look it up. But every page of the Bible is about Jesus Christ coming to save the world. So we need to see God's plans to save uh, not just an odd person here or there, but there's a, a global scope. There's a wide scope to God's saving intentions for his world. And it's not limited to souls. Okay? What are the things that God saves? Well, people. But God will also save education. He will also save art. He will also save work. And he will save farmland. And he will save government. God is interested in saving the whole scope of things, not just souls to get helicopter out of Sinai. He's interested in redeeming his creation, every part of it. So there is a global or a universal scope to all of this. But some have taken this to, uh, to mean a, a universalism in the sense that now everybody is saved, or everybody will be saved. Okay? Or, um, well, I'll leave it there. But this idea of universalism in the sense that everybody is saved. Or at the very least, that everyone is now by default redeemed. Okay? And so the only way you can be not saved is by actively rejecting the salvation that you have. So the default goes from we are fallen to now the default, according to some people. I'm not advocating this or explaining it. According to some people, the default setting now is everyone's saved. Everyone's born saved. I suppose if you actively reject the gospel, you could lose it. 
but hypothetically, there's a, a kind of universalism there. And a text like this is often used to support this view. So what does it mean that God desires all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth? Okay, uh, and we have to ask ourselves two questions. Are all people saved? Do all people come to knowledge of the truth, as in every last person? Okay, and, and hopefully we agree that that's not the case. The Bible talks much uh, about those who are outside the kingdom. So that we've also that. So the answer is no. Not all are saved. Okay? So what do we do with the word all? Well, let's think about this. This is where we're going to use the language what this word means. All, very often means all kinds. Okay? So it means all without distinction, not all without exception. So what does all mean? All men, right? Slave, poor, Greek, Hebrew, right? That's all. All kinds. Not every last person who has ever existed. Okay, and there's plenty of examples in scripture where this is just manifestly obvious. In John 12, 9, the Pharisees are complaining, and then they say that the whole world has gone after Jesus. Okay? Well, does that mean every last person on earth at that time was following Jesus? No. But the whole world was. Rich people were following Jesus. They were following Jesus. Poor people were following Jesus. Men were following Jesus. The whole world was following Jesus. But not every individual in the world was followed. Do you see that distinction? And I'm going to look for not again. You've heard we're going to use some words here. Okay, so does this make sense? All without distinction, not all without exception. Uh, there's a parallel verse in 2 Peter 3 9 that says that uh, Peter's writing to the church and says that God is patient towards you, not willing that any of you should perish. Okay? And so there's a, a parallel verse here. Uh, but the key there is he is patient towards you. And then you go to the beginning of the book, and this is what addresses the church. It's all of you. God's patient towards all of you, not willing that any should perish. Okay? Uh, so again, this should be read, if we're going to take the whole scope of the Bible into view, this should be read as all kinds of people. Okay? There's no class of people that is excluded from the gospel. The Jews have it, the Gentiles have it, men, women, slaves, or uh, you know, uh, you know that. Okay? Uh, and I will point out that even in our current situation, we use language this way all the time. So that is right. all the time. Really, Matt? So every second of every single day you talk about all the time. But I do it all the time. I do it in the bar. I just did it here. I'm going with my friends there. I talk that way all the time. But that doesn't mean every single second of every single day that I'm doing this, okay? So all in common usage does not mean every last person. It means all kinds of people. Right? It means the whole world, not every single person in the world. <clears throat> so, if we see the way the Bible uses words like world and all, we can see that there is a, a global scope, but at the same time, this in no way uh, should or could be used to uh, embrace the kind of universal salvation that someone has suggested. And, and again, this is the world stuff. So I'm hoping everyone's tracking along with us so far. Okay? So that's the telescope, that's the microscope on the word all. Now we're going to zoom out here a little bit. This talks about God's desire. What does the will of God mean in the Bible? This is really worth thinking about. What does the will of God mean in the Bible? So if I agree that not every last person is saved, and that God desires all people to be saved, how do we not have a helpless contradiction? And as God's speaking with the fourth tongue, and he's deceiving us, he says he wants one thing, but then another thing happens. 
What do we do with that? Okay, uh, and so for non universalists, if you look at this text in City 8, it says God desires the salvation of all people, not all people are saved. Therefore, we have to grant it. God desires something more than He desires the salvation of every last person. And within the evangelical family, you'll get different answers from people as to why that may be. The Arminian will stress that God desires us to exercise our free will more than He desires the salvation of all people. And so that is the explanation for why not all are saved. God desires something more than He desires the salvation of every last person. And the this will point to Romans 9, verses 9 and on, and say, No, God desires His own glory, His own purposes, to show both wrath and grace in His creation. And that's the reason not all people are saved. But whichever view makes the most sense to you, whichever view you take, we all agree on one thing. God desires something more than He desires the salvation of every last person who has ever been born. So we have a dilemma here. And we have to face it straight up. Okay? And those of you who know my teaching from previous years, uh, I'm fond of saying that just because we have something that uh, appears like a contradiction in the Bible, it can't be a contradiction. God doesn't see us before time, doesn't deceive us, he's speaking truth. Uh, and so then we might be tempted to say, well, this verse cancels out that one, so the Bible says nothing. Of course, that's not an option. Or we can say that they contradict. We already know that's not an option. So then what do we do? Well, this side has 13 verses, and this side has 9, so this side wins. Right? Is that, is that a responsible way to handle the Word of God? Right? How many times does the Bible have to say something for it to be true? Once. It says it once, it's the Word of God. So, whatever we do when we run into these kinds of dilemmas, we have to think carefully and put it together in a way that no contradiction remains. We have to understand this in a harmonious way. And we have to see that in the Bible, there are at least two senses of the word, the will of God. Okay? There's at least two different meanings. This resolves the contradiction. You can ask a question. Does God like sexual sin? No, he does not. So, in that sense, is sexual sin ever the will of God? No, never. Okay? Hold that thought. You're right. It's not the will of God. In Genesis 20, verse 6, Abraham and his wife Sarah go in to the nation. King Benelot is there and he notices that Sarah's a beautiful woman. Abraham and Sarah kind of tell a half truth. Well, this is my sister, right? That's a half truth. It's a half truth. Benelot uh, takes her in and then afterward he, he leaves her alone, even when she's in his house all night. Uh, and then in the morning, God says in Genesis 20, verse 6, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Okay? God kept Abimelech from touching this woman. Okay? He kept him from sinning. Looking so far. Okay? Now, fast forward a few hundred years, King David sees a beautiful woman. Okay? He calls her to come over. She comes over. He's got one thing in mind. Okay? Could God have done for David what he had done for Abimelech? Sure, stop Did God stop David? No, he did not. Was that because God lost some kind of contest? Was there some kind of force above God that kept God from stopping this situation? Or was it a free choice on God's part to not intervene? And of course, we have to say that. It was God's choice to not intervene. God freely chose us. So, in that sense, did God will 
for the adultery of David and Bathsheba to happen, in the sense that he could have stopped it and he chose not to? Yes. Yes, he could have. And he did not. So in that sense, there's both of them. Okay? And in another sense, absolutely under no conditions. The word for this is, we won't go to real deep Bible, this will give us some first much discussion, uh, is we have God's will of command, or his moral will. The things that God finds pleasing and displeasing, and it's clear in Scripture. This is the will of God that we are accountable to obey, because it's public. He's made it known, he lets us know what he wills, and what he doesn't know, what he loves, and what he hates. Uh, and then there's God's will of decree, or his sovereign will, which is everything that happens. Everything that happens, including the bad parts of the story. Okay? Uh, and it's important to make this distinction. Because if tragedy or cancer of someone's life, okay, someone's little daughter gets hit by a drunk driver, what's that the will of God? Well, if we can only answer that one way, we have a big, big problem. If all we can do is offer some kind of cold, hard fatalism, yep, that was the will of God, step up or let drive on, we're showing no care, no compassion, and no recognition for the injustice that just happened. If, on the other hand, our only answer is, no, 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 that's not the will of God. God doesn't like how driving, so no, no, okay? Well, if that's the only answer, we think, what kind of universe do we live in? This death was meaningless. It was meaningless. It's just cold fatalism, again, in a different sense. So we have to be able to have some kind of category in our head that says everything that happens is the will of God in one sense, and yet in another sense, uh, it is not. Much more can be said on that. We will do a deep dive today, but keep in mind there's God's will of command and His will of decree. God's will of command is broken millions of times every day by Christians and non-Christians alike. His will of decree can never be broken, ever, under any circumstance. Even the bad parts of the story are the story that God is pleased to tell. So we need to distinguish this. It's practical in another way in our sense. why this is important to think through, much confusion has been unleashed about us finding the will of God, which job would take, which job would marry, which job would abide, and so forth. And so, uh, some have been sitting on the path of asking for a word or a vision or a dream or so forth to come answer that question. Let's say, which will of God are we looking at? It's his moral will. You have everything you need in the Bible, right? As long as you're not sinning, pick whichever color of truck you want. You're free to pick. There's nothing morally wrong here. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, you can go to sleep knowing that everything that happened that day was the will of God in another sense, and so don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. We don't need a picture or a word to make decisions. Follow the word of God, and what happens, happens. It's sort of our control after we're at the point. So don't sweat it. You need a special revelation to make a decision. You have moral freedom to choose as you wish. <coughs> So again, this helps to answer this question about why, you know, if it says God desires all people to be saved, not all people are saved, uh, the microscope is word all can have different meanings. The big picture is that we have to see layers or textures in God's will. God can will things in more than one sense, and in fact, He does will things in more than one sense. And I think in the interest of time, I will look at there. I hope I haven't confused everybody. But do these categories make some sense? Sure, there will be opportunity to revisit this in the future. Okay. But I hope this category makes sense. If we don't have these two categories, we have an insoluble problem in the Bible. 
how God can will sinful things to happen to himself being sinful. This is the only solution to this problem, and we need to understand that verse. Then verse 5, which is the main part of this passage, the main thing. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. Man, Jesus Christ. So the idea that there is only one God is one of the most repeated themes in the Bible, both in the Old and in the New Testament. And we're reminded of this here once again. Between us and this one and only God, there is only one mediator, and this is a key theme here in this verse. Okay? So if a couple is happily married, everything's going good, you need a mediator. Two business partners are making profits and they're just absolutely crushing it and they're getting along because everything's going good. They need a mediator in that situation. That's just no. Right? Why do we need a mediator? When things are broken. And when things are falling apart. When a marriage is struggling. When there's tension between management and labor. That's when you need a mediator to step in to fix a problem that exists. Okay? So the fact that Christ has to come as a mediator shows there's a big problem. There's a problem between man and God. And the Bible lays out very clear terms for this problem is. Our first parents fell, and they passed their corrupt nature down to all of us. So we are sinners first by nature, and then we are sinners by our actions. In Genesis 6, verse 5, looking at fallen man, uh, described this in the strongest possible way that he could. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You cannot add one adjective to make that a stronger statement. Every intention of the heart of man was only evil continually. There is no hope in the human heart whatsoever. We are not good people. And we are not good people. We are sinners. We are rebels. Ephesians 2 says that we're dead and sin by nature, children of wrath. And then the prophet Habakkuk tells us in the first chapter in his book, that God's eyes are too pure and too holy to even look at sin. And so there is a great divorce between us and God, both because of what our first parents did in the garden and then because of our own actions. And this has to be dealt with if we are ever going to stand before our holy God. The nature of our problem means that we cannot work towards God because our desires are corrupt. So even when we do the right thing, it's still mixed in with sin. Right? We have an unworkable solution or an unworkable problem if a mediator doesn't step in and fix this on our behalf. And the beginning of verse 5 tells us that there's one God. And then the end of the verse speaks about the man, Jesus Christ. And we often talk about Jesus as having two natures, and this is true and this is important. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Is that just something we say or is it important? It's very important. There must be a case for him to be mediator, or must be a case for him to be mediator, because he represents both sides. Okay? Jesus Christ, the God man, represents both sides of this conflict. He represents man and he represents God. Who can earn us our righteousness back other than one of us? Right? This is why sheep and goats in the kind of the Old Testament. They can't actually represent us, they can symbolically represent us, but it's going to take a man to actually represent us. Now, we need a second Adam to come to what the first Adam did. And likewise, on the other side, on God's part, the offended party, who can please God other than God? No one. Only God can satisfy God's righteous demands. So the mediator has to also be truly God. He has to be fully God and fully man, or else this project is doomed. There's only one way for this to get fixed, and that is the God man, Jesus Christ. And so it is equally important that we affirm his humanity and his divinity. 
If you compromise on either end, no gospel is possible whatsoever. And he does come as the second Adam, who represents all who fall in line after him. Okay? And you can actually see in Christ's ministry how he retraces Adam's steps and does it well. So the first Adam was put in a garden where he received every good gift. The second Adam prays in the garden, suffering as he's about to lose every earthly gift, including the support of his friends. The first Adam refused to take responsibility for a problem that he directly created. And the second Adam takes responsibility for a situation that he did not create in any sense. The first, the, the first Adam disobeyed at a tree, and the second Adam obeyed on a tree. The first Adam was put to sleep, and his side opened up, so God could give him a bride on his side. The second Adam, his side opened up with a Roman spear, so God could remove his bride from his side. You see how this works? Right? Christ retraces, the second Adam retraces the steps of the first Adam. This is called typology. God builds a story in pictures and in events. So the mediator, the man Jesus Christ, retraces all the steps of the original problem so he can undo all the things that the original problem created. And this is why weddings feature so prominently in the story, right? If you read the Old Testament, there's a woman at a well, you know, a wedding isn't far off, right? Uh, creation opens with a wedding. Jesus starts his public ministry at a wedding. And the very last pages of the Bible talk about the wedding feast of the Lamb. Weddings feature prominently because in the wisdom of God, the great divorce that happened after the first wedding is solved into the great wedding feast of the Lamb. This is all put back together. The divorce is uh, turned into a wedding of the Lamb. And Christ cannot do that if he is not fully man and fully God. He must be the mediator. <coughs> This is what is meant in Romans 3, 25, when it says that God is both the just and the justifier. He is the offended party who demands holiness, but he is also the one who provides the people with this holiness. The last thing in verses 6 and 7, it says that he gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and apostle, I'm telling you the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul knows that in his ministry, he is to preach and teach the gospel even to outsiders, even to Gentiles. And this is especially noteworthy in Paul's case because he is a former Pharisee. Uh, and he would have, by nature, he would have been taught that Jesus was superior. So the fact that God humbles this Pharisee and Pharisees to go bring the gospel to outsiders uh, is also showing the wisdom of God to do unexpected things. Then he talks about the ransom. And this, this theme appears often in the Bible. A ransom means that someone's demands have to be satisfied. Uh, something has to be paid for the party to be satisfied. Okay. Um, sometimes in the church, people have taken this theory to mean that Christ paid the ransom to Satan. So the ransom is paid to Satan. Okay. Uh, but that gives Satan far too much power. That leaves Satan in charge of human souls. And of course, that is not the case. The one who has all the claim on us is not Satan, but God. Okay? And so we see this in Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So our sinfulness is not offense to Satan, it's offense to God. And it's the Father to whom this opinion is owed. And therefore, the ransom that Jesus gave is offered to the Father. The ransom is paid uh, for all. And again, you know what the word all 
Uh, it does mean in Griffin, Biblical speech. It doesn't mean all of the distinction, it means all of the exception. Pardon me? All of the exception? You know what I mean. It's something on my All kinds of people, not every last person who's ever lived. Okay? Um, now, there isn't some kind of formula that Christ has to drop so and so many drops of blood per person at a city. So, in that sense, Christ's atonement looks identical, whether he saves dozens of people or whether he saves billions of people. Uh, so, we can say that Christ's atonement, the work that he does on the cross, is in fact sufficient for all, but is effective only for believers. And so, all anguish here works similarly to what we saw in the chapter. The ransom doesn't automatically free every last person who has ever lived, but it does free all people, all kinds of people. It frees all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ in all times, in all ages, all nations, all ethnicities. And so the wideness of the ransom here is significant because it means that Christ's death, life, resurrection, and ascension in heaven are once for all events. They're not things that need to be repeated over and over and over again. Christ is perfect, and this means that all the saving work is perfect. He's the God man, the one and only mediator between the whole mass of humanity and the one and only God who demands perfect righteousness for anyone who draws near to him. Lord God, we want to thank you that you sent your son, you sent the God man, the perfect mediator between us. Lord, and that we can enjoy what He puts back together. And what weddings mean, what our present weddings mean, are actually signs that point to what you are doing in reservation. Lord, the great divorce has been fixed. We pray for every person here that they would know what it is to be reconciled to you. That we are enjoying the union with you, that we know you now as Father instead of as Judge. Lord, and for those of us who are in the land, I pray that you would see as a father who is not in hand, not stingy, but you enjoy giving us gifts. Lord, I pray that you would see as the kind father that you are, and that we would reflect that in our posture, praying and trusting you, and you remind us for every good thing that we enjoy. And that we would see your hand in all things, and even the hard parts of the story are for your good, for our benefit, that we can enjoy you more fully. So, charge is this. In his wisdom, God sent his son, the God man Jesus Christ, into the world to mediate between us and God. It is through him that the great divorce is transformed into the wedding feast of the Lamb. Our task this week is to remember that the Son gave the ransom due to the Father. Because of Him, we are not only not guilty, but perfect and righteous. Because of Him, God is no longer our judge, but our Father. And good fathers enjoy giving gifts to their children. God wants people to be a praying people. Because when we pray, we are showing our reliance on His provision. When we pray for our government, we are also acknowledging the kingdom of the kings and the law of the law. So I'll leave you with the benediction from Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets 
is the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And may all the Lord peace.